Hi, I'm Jeffrey Rickman, and I'm a local licensed pastor in a little town called Nowata in the United Methodist Church. And I've been wanting to do a, a weekly digest show for some time uh, out of a feeling of, of there being a need in the denomination for just humble, non-influential voices to kind of process what's going on together. My sensibilities are conservative, and I don't know that there's a role for me to play, but I know that, that it's been a lot of work trying to understand where we are as a denomination and my role in that. And uh, I'm an old school Wesleyan, and I, I want to try and discern a place for, for people who are just simple uh, Wesleyans who believe in that original doctrine and discipline with which we set out. So if, uh, if you're like that, then I, I would ask you to spend some time with me and go through some of these topics. I have an interview coming up with uh, another Wesleyan who uh, is different from me, but also similar. And uh, my hope is that, that this will encourage you and, and give you strength and, and knowledge for the days ahead. So um, if that's something that appeals to you, if you spend some time with me and you like it, then I would invite you to just follow me, whether you're looking at me on YouTube or Facebook, subscribe, and let's see if we can't give a, get a weekly culture of just educating ourselves, encouraging others in a Wesleyan frame of mind, and, um, and see if that's something that would be good for us. So um, there are going to be three portions to this. The first is I always want to start off with some original Wesleyan doctrine, and then I want to go into some of the developments of the last week or two and then I want to uh, consult our guest for today. So uh, I wanted to begin with this quote that I ran across from John Wesley himself. I've been kind of leaning uh, Reformed Calvinist for some time. I find a lot of comfort in imagining that God is in control of every single detail, that everything has been worked out, that, that my free will um, is not something that can screw things up. Um, so I've been, I've been kind of really sympathetic to um, thinkers like um, John MacArthur and Vody Bauckham and Doug Wilson. I just, I find a lot of comfort in their doctrine. Um, but then I read this quote this last week from John Wesley that really messed me up. So I'm going to read that now, and then uh, well, we'll see what we do after that. So Calvinists, Reformed Christians who uh, believe in God's sovereignty over against our free will. Calvinists who deny that salvation can ever be lost reason on the subject in a marvelous way. They tell us that no virgin's lamp can go out. No promising harvest can be choked with thorns. No branch in Christ can ever be cut off from unfruitfulness. No pardon can ever be forfeited, and no, tame, no name blotted out of God's book. They insist that no salt can ever lose its savor. Nobody can ever receive the grace of God in vain, or bury his talents, or neglect such great salvation trifle away a day of grace, or look back after putting his hand to the gospel plow. Nobody can grieve the spirit till he is quenched and strives no more, nor deny the Lord that bought them, nor bring upon themselves swift destruction. Nobody or body of believers can ever get so lukewarm that Jesus will spew them out of his mouth. They use reams of paper to argue that if one ever got lost, he was never found, that if one falls, he never stood. If one was ever cast forth, he was never in. And if one ever withered, he was never green. And that if any man draws back, it proves that he never had anything to draw back from. That if one ever falls away into spiritual darkness, he was never enlightened. That if you again get entangled in the pollutions of the world, it shows you never escaped. That if you put salvation away, you never had it to put away. 
And if he makes shipwreck of faith, there was no ship of faith there. In short, they say, if you get it, you can't lose it. And if you lose it, you never had it. May God save us from accepting a doctrine that must be defended by such fallacious reasoning. <laughs> so that messed with me yesterday because I've heard a lot of great doctrine from Bodie Bauckham and John MacArthur. I listened to them. You know, one of my favorite quotes is John MacArthur saying, if we could lose our salvation, we would. And I like the sentiment of that because we are sinful screw-ups in our, in our base nature before we're born again. But even so, when the Holy Spirit makes us a new creation, well, then what then? Can we turn our back on God? And it's worth remembering that, that Adam himself was in paradise when he turned from the Lord. I, uh, I find Reformed theology comforting because I imagine that there's no way I can screw this up. And now, I think all Wesleyans and Arminians would, would say there's no way to screw God's plans up for all of history. But can I screw up my own salvation? And John Wesley's quotes there, if, if you know your Bible, he, he has like 20 scriptural citations all throughout, probably 30. And each of those seems to be clearly about losing one's salvation if you don't take it seriously, if you don't work out your salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul said in Philippians. So there is, I think, supposed to be some anxiety on our end about being faithful. And I think that's something distinctive about the Wesleyan witness. And as we are looking at our context today, there are a lot of people who, who want to have kind of an indifferent attitude and say, well, God's in control. He's on his throne. Everything's going to be okay. He's going to work out what needs to happen with the Wesleyans in the way that he wants, as if there's not a role for us to play day by day in proclaiming scriptural holiness. And so this quote that I shared with you makes me think that perhaps there is a role for me to play and for you to play and for faithful uh, churches to play that do have that simple gospel uh, kernel that they're preaching every single week. We need to bear fruit together. So with that in mind, I want to lift up just a few developments over the last couple weeks. First is that uh, the Wesleyan Covenant Association has issued some statements over the last couple of weeks. The first one is to stop paying apportionments and put those monies in escrow. So that's from a, uh, an article put out on August 12th called Let Our People Go. And then the second is a moratorium, uh, ending the moratorium on filing charges on liberal clergy who don't obey the Book of Discipline. And so that came out a week later on the 18th in an article called The Moratorium is Over. So I'm going to be speaking with my guests here in a minute but uh, about this and, and how we should feel about this. But both of these uh, uh, articles talk about changing the covenant relationship between conservative churches and the denomination as a whole. Now, this follows on the heels of, of several decades of tension between conservatives and the institution as a whole. Many decades of, of individual churches withholding apportionments, many decades of individual churches and Methodists filing charges against others. It has been a most unpleasant journey. Um, is it something that glorifies God? Is it something that is a reflection of Methodist discipline or not? Um, so this is, this is something to reflect on. The, the, in the WCA was formed as an advocacy coalition group aimed at changing the temperature within the denomination. And is this something that's helpful for them to do, or is this something that actually works against them? Now, the second development is um, just the other day, Judicial Council came out with a ruling finally on paragraph 2548.2, uh, 
which was a provision in our discipline going back to the very beginning that whenever a church wants to disaffiliate, they can transfer their affiliation to another evangelical denomination. And it's been used dozens of times over several decades, and yet the bishops submitted that to the Judicial Council. That's, that's the United Methodist version of the Supreme Court and asked for a ruling. Can it be used for local churches that want to transfer their affiliation to the new conservative startup denomination, the Global Methodist Church? WCA and, and other conservative advocacy groups have been pushing local conservative churches to disaffiliate from the United Methodist Church and transfer their affiliation to the Global Methodist Church. And rather than use paragraph 2553 that was designed in the 2019 special call general conference for liberal churches that didn't like the conservative stance of the Book of Discipline, rather than using that, conservative churches have been saying, we would like to use 2548.2 to exit because it has easier provisions with voting, has easier exit provisions with how much money is owed and how long you have to pay it when, it, when you go. Now there is a definitive judgment saying, nope, 2548.2 cannot be used for any churches really that want to exit unless they're going to one of the denominations officially adopted or approved by the Council of Bishops um, in the Pan-Methodist Connection. So we, we may or may not talk about that. There are a lot of different factors involved in this, but there are a lot of conservative churches, a lot of conservative clergy who feel like this is an open sign of corruption within the Judicial Council. And this comes after a couple other public decisions made several months ago now that seem to indicate uh, much sympathy for institutional parties and no sympathy whatsoever for conservative churches that feel trapped in a covenant relationship that they don't want to be a part of anymore. So we'll talk more about that in a minute. This one's particular to the Oklahoma Conference of the United Methodist Church. We're having a special called annual conference in October to approve disaffiliating churches and to approve the conference budget. Um, I'm a part of a group that's been trying to track how many churches are disaffiliating right now, whether they're trying to exit under 2548.2 or 2553, who the different leaders are in charge. And by my count, I sat up last night and tried to do this. There are 12 churches that have already held votes or are going to be holding votes before the October annual conference. And if I've uh, heard right, if I've calculated this right, these uh, we're not going to just be losing 24 annual conference votes for conservatives in Oklahoma but we're gonna be losing up to a third of our annual conference budget. Uh, and of course, they're paying a lot of money to get out, but after a couple of years, that, that money is gone, and that affects the rest of us who are left behind. There are another 53 churches, to my understanding, that have formally conveyed an, an, uh, an interest to our annual conference in disaffiliating, and uh, that's out of 450 congregations. Uh, Oklahoma skews right theologically, at least when you look at the the grassroots people on the ground. Our clergy, I think, probably skew left a little bit, but our, our people on the ground skew conservative. And I, I'm of the mind that a lot would be interested in disaffiliating if the cost wasn't prohibitive, if it wasn't so intimidating to, to think about that. So I'll ask my guest about that in a minute. Now, finally, uh, one of the things that's that's been confusing to me, one of the things that's been a little disturbing to me is that there are many different caucus groups in what I think is usually called the Reform and Renewal Renewal and Reform Coalition, uh, Good News Magazine, uh, the WCA, the IRD, a lot of acronyms. 
pretty much all of them in a uniform voice are saying, if you are conservative, you need to get out of the United Methodist Church now, otherwise you're going to be trapped. And there, there seem to be a, a few components to this, this reasoning. One is 2553, the paragraph that, that I've been talking about that is being used for disaffiliating churches right now, originally designed for liberal churches, now being used for conservative churches. That only exists through the end of uh, 2023. And so December 31st, 2023 is the last day it can possibly be used. After that, if you're in, there is no disciplinary provision now that churches can disaffiliate through. In general conference 2024, they may or may not build a provision for churches to disaffiliate. But as it is, it looks like that door is going to be closing. And with so many conservative churches disaffiliating right now, it seems that most, if not all, of, of the American United Methodist Church is going to skew left, liberal. And at that point, when they gather with the Africans and the Filipinos and the other worldwide church at our next general conference, who is going to prevail? What kind of legislation are they going to be able to pass? And are they going to carry the day with um, a, a new sla a slate of, of resolutions that either sever the American church from the global church and their, their polity and their, their theology so that they're able to uh, adopt measures that are friendly to um, uh, sexual minorities, uh, LGBTQ persons, or uh, are they going to change the rules for the whole connection so that even the global church has to, to make provision for uh, behaviors and parties that, that they understand to be working against God's um, instructions for sexual ethics? So to me, it has been far from clear that this is a statistical inevitability. Um, it seems to me that globally, conservatives are still growing and liberals are shrinking. When you look at our churches, conservative churches are growing, liberal churches are shrinking, especially when you look at the global picture. It seems to me that the long view, conservatives could easily, in eight years, win this denomination over. Uh, it seems strange to me that all of the right-leaning coalitions are saying, get out now, it's a lost cause. I'm not sure I understand the different powers at play here. Um, so I'm going to bring all this to my uh, guest now, and I'm going to turn to him, and, and we'll see what we talk about. This is Rudy Fries, and he's a new friend in my world. I've, I've been working with him um, uh, through some groups that we're a part of. I have a lot of respect for him. He talks about things that a lot of Methodists don't talk about, um, specifically deliverance ministry, and that's where he's really an expert, and I've really appreciated his uh, witness online. Uh, but I, I kind of want to know more about him personally uh, so that we can all kind of track with him as he's leading us through these topics. And then I, I want to dip back into some of these topics that we talked about, and then we're going to end with talking about deliverance ministry, uh, the reality of supernatural influence in our lives, especially the demonic and the role that we can play in uh, purifying uh, a very impure world. So. The WCA has now urged conservative churches that um, feel trapped no longer to give apportionments to the denomination. And the language, you know, there's clear disciplinary language that all United Methodist churches are, I mean, one of their first responsibilities is paying apportionments. It's just a clear sign of covenant faithfulness. And um, to, many, uh, to many people, this seems like outright hypocrisy whenever conservatives are screaming, you guys are being unfaithful to the covenant. We have a shared covenant. You guys are not obeying. For us to then answer in kind and say, well, we're not going to obey the covenant either. Um, 
Is that what's going on here? Yeah, so a um, couple thoughts on that. Um, and, and let's start with the WCA statement uh, to do that is focused on a couple conferences that have been uh, extremely punitive for the conservative churches trying to leave. Um, what I would say, and if you're not aware, I, I currently serve as the vice president of the WCA, newly elected to that position. Uh, I was a charter member of the WCA back in 2016 when they launched. I filled out my paperwork to be a charter member um, because I believe in in providing strong support for our conservative churches and, and, and members that uh, want to see an orthodoxy return to the church. And so that's, you know, from the Oklahoma WCA stance, um, we have a conference that is, for the most part, working with us, mm -hmm. trying, to, trying to help conservative churches leave that feel they need to leave the denomination. But if you travel over to Arkansas mm -hmm. and you're a conservative church, uh, the uh, bishop there and the uh, board of trustees, uh, they charge you a 50% excise tax on your church property to leave. Mm. So if you have a $2 million property, they want a million dollars on top of the exit fees that are required for pension liability uh, and uh, um, apportionments that are spelled out in the two, 2553 uh, provision. So there are some conferences where the bishops are not acting. And, and the hope is, is that the protocol would have passed in 2020. So when you talk about the protocol, yep. that is the protocol for peaceful separate. What, what, what was the full uh, title for that? Boy, it's a mouthful. It was a separation, a protocol for separation through grace and something else. Nice. Something else. Yes. Nice. It was put together by a, a, a lawyer, not a Methodist yeah. Jewish guy, that felt sorry for us, and he mm -hmm. got together all of our different constituency coalition yep. reps, yep. left and right and middle. Yep. What are the conditions under which we could separate and not have hard feelings? And we came up with an arrangement, yep. which was to everybody's liking, which we at General Conference 2020 would have probably approved. However, COVID came, yep. we had to cancel, cancel again the following year. Over that time, we had more and more falling out. Finally, the left-leaning groups withdrew their support a few months ago. Right. Looks as though it doesn't really have much of a chance at this coming up general conference. So if the protocol had passed, all would have gone well. It looks like the protocol is now donezo. Well, when they withdrew their support, that was one of the things that led to the Global Methodist Church finally saying, okay, we're going to start this thing. Yes. We're not going to wait on general conference anymore. We're just going to do it. Yep. And so um, the idea from the Wesley Covenant pr perspective is that protocol was gracious, mm -hmm. uh, and it was a, an opportunity for us to bless each other and say, hey, you go be in ministry, we'll go be in ministry, God will bless both of our ministries, let's just not hurt each other anymore. Yeah. And we were at a point of, of hurt. We were we were hurtful to each Still other. Still there, yeah. Our language is if not good for each other. you General Conference 2019, oh, it was icky. Yeah. Oh, it was awful. I was there. Oh, I didn't know that. You yeah. went to, oh, man. Yeah, made it a priority to go. I'd not been to General Conference before. I'd followed General Conference since about 2012, I guess, when everything that got passed didn't pass. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I made General Conference. I've tried to be a part of it online, worshiping uh, the worship service. Every, every aspect of it, try to be engaged uh, just to educate myself. And so 2019, that was historic. And so I just wanted to be present and be a part of that. And so you weren't a voting rep. You were nope. just, okay. Nope, just went as an observer in the gallery. You're just a good Methodist. Uh, well, I was, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it was chaos. Yeah. It was horrible. The language was horrible. Mm. Uh, you know, Africa just had um, Ebola outbreak. And so 
someone stands up and equates the traditional plan to, uh, you know, a disease, a disease. Yeah. yeah. And going to kill us. Yeah. Going to kill us. And that was it, Tom Berlin. I'll call him out by name. <laughs> he did that. It was, it was sad. It was sad to see how Karen Nicholas, uh, tied to the WCA here. She wrote up a full account of what happened at 2019 and all of the, the really abysmal, disgusting things that happened there yeah. really. And, and yes, the temperature has gone down since then, but we've gotten even more entrenched and yes. the, the hurt is still happening. Yeah. It's just a prolonged, I mean, it's like, it's like there's a cancer eating away at us and we're, we're going through chemo and, and we're just slowly dying. It's just terrible. Yeah. It, it's really unbearable. So, so your position is that the WCA is, is, is providing a touchstone for a transition to happen here and whether or not the problem is, within our annual conference, it is approach that needs to be used across the whole connection. No, no. No, you, no. you would say only within those annual conferences. That's exactly okay. right. And in fact, the WCA put out a list of annual conferences that were not acting within the uh, spirit of the protocol. It's like 19 of them, right? 19 of yeah. them. And uh, and so the idea is, is those 19 are, are causing harm to the conservative churches that are trying to leave. So yeah. this is their way of uh, combating that. Again, in Oklahoma, we've had um, a pretty uh, congenial relationship with with the conference uh, bishop, um, and so they're providing they're providing a means for us to exit that's not overly punitive. Some people would say the fees are really high and and a high bar to reach. The uh, percentage of vote for a local church to exit is high, uh, but that's all spelled out in the in the paragraph twenty five fifty three. That they're using for the exit, and so in Oklahoma, uh, we wouldn't encourage the withholding of abortion. Now, the the uh, overall WCA has said to for all annual conferences withhold the Episcopal fund uh, as a way to. That's the fund that pays the salaries of all of our bishops. Yeah, many conservatives are of the mind that the Council of Bishops has been especially hostile to conservative interests in the denomination. And so there needs to be a, a response to that. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's a language of what's in the paragraph, but there's also this thing of just conscience and ethics and faithfulness. And one of the things that really just sticks in the craw of a lot of people is we have discerned that we don't want to be in this covenant relationship anymore. We don't want in. Mm -hmm. And you're standing between us and freedom saying, give us some money or we're going to take everything from you. And at that point, there, there does it, it, it raises a question of how do we maintain the impression that this is a Christian organization when we're treating each other this way? And when the only response is, well, hey, this is what's in the discipline. You know, when we're hiding behind a legalistic approach to language that we created, you would expect that, that people of, of conscience and love would say, I know what's in the book of discipline but I'm not going to stand between you and your freedom. I'm not going to take that money that was put in the offering plate for mission in your local church and throw it at a, 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 a denom or at a, at an annual conference that is going to hurt you. If you, you don't that yeah. something about that just really feels icky. And a lot of people in the pews, you know, the clergy, we've just learned to deal with it. We just learned, this is normal. This is what nature, we do. Yeah. But a lot of people in the pews, they hear about it and they go, how is this right? Right. How on earth can you justify this? And there's, I haven't heard any responses from conference officials that really answer that on the same wavelength. Yeah. Um, a lot of it has been, well, we started these things together, and if you're going to leave, then you need to finish this through. And there's not an acknowledgement of, 
you've actually been funding this for decades. <laughs> you, know? right. you have been doing that, and because you've been faithful, we're going to say yeah. goodbye now. There, there, it, it feels like a bad faith thing, and the, the confusing thing is the people on the other side don't have bad intentions. So how do we have this deep disagreement where it feels so obviously disrespectful and dishonoring of Christ when, when that is not the intent at all? It's just one of these warped things. But you're of the mind that, that in Oklahoma, it's really not called for to withhold apportionments right. at this point. And then does the, the more, ending the moratorium on charges, does that also apply in Oklahoma? Yeah, let me, let me back up to that uh, just a second. So the, um, the unfunded pension liability is probably the biggest dollar amount that the church has to take yeah. care of. And what that is, uh, from, from my perspective, it's right that we help the clergy who are retiring have retirement, put it in place. The, the challenge is, is that some believe on the conservative side when those calculations are put together, it's like doomsday Armageddon, the market completely yeah. crashes, and yes. this is going to Everybody lives for a past 100, time. yes. Yeah. Yeah. So there's been some negotiations that have gone on that, that are really more favorable to the idea that, okay, if those monies aren't used, they'll be returned. So the latest uh, agreement, disaffiliation agreement, uh, 20, I think it's a 10-year window. So if Westpath, who is our retirement uh, organization, changes... They're uh, the ones handling our money. Handling yeah. our money for our retired clergy. If they change the way they do business or, or they recast a different model uh, between... If you disaffiliate as a church uh, this October and in six years from now they re recalculate that and it's different, your money's in escrow. They're only using the actual monies needed to pay for pensions. And so that money's then refunded back to the local church. Yeah. Now, that doesn't help on the front end of getting out. But yeah, it, as it, it is right now, but at least, there is no way to pay over time or pay later. It's all up front. It's all up front. Pay all this money up front, That's right. which is usually about five times your annual uh, apportionment rate, I think, five to six times. Yeah, it's, it's a high dollar amount. But the, the beauty of that is that's something that's taken place over time with the idea that, um, you know, before it was, well, where is this money going to be kept? Yeah. How are they going to spend this money? Yeah. Is it only going for pensions? Yeah. Or can they spend it for survivability of the Whatever. conference? Yeah. Right. And so we feel, I feel, that it's been a transition toward trying to come up with a comparable agreement so that uh, it's not uh, punitive mm -hmm. as much as possible. Still feels punitive for some of those churches that that's an absorbent, exorbitant amount of money. That's still tough for them, uh, but I think it shows at least good faith on our conference's part that they're trying to figure out how to make it in a, make it happen in a way that is still fair to all. And we have to realize um, the United Methodist Church is not going to be anything what it looks like right now. Churches are leaving. Consider you considerable amount of churches are, are leaving and deciding to leave. You talked about budget. We'll talk about that here in a minute. I know you're going to get to that. But uh, the conference is planning for what's it going to look like when X amount of percent of budget is gone. Yeah. How are we going to survive? Rather than raising taxes, <laughs> right? Apportionments, to, yeah. To, to keep the, uh, to keep, afloat, to keep the, the ship afloat, uh, they're having the conversations. I was in a meeting yesterday. I'm on the denominational transition team. Uh, which is the group that is helping put the policies in place to help look the procedures in place mm -hmm. so that churches wanting to exit can exit. Um, 
you know, that conversation was up. They're, they're trying to finalize this before annual conference in October because they've got to put a budget forward. And so they're looking at a drastic reduction in the, in the budget without raising apportionments on the local churches. So there's a big picture where they're trying to accomplish several things. And I can't imagine all the moving parts no. to, to that. I don't know that there's, anybody has room for that in their brain. There's so much it's going huge, on. It's a huge, huge It's a huge thing to, to take place because it'll no longer look the way it looked before. Well, and it's not like it looks now like it did 15, 20 years ago. I mean, it's it's we used to be, one in three Americans used to be a Methodist. Right. We used to be majority, when we put out statements, it used to be in the paper the next day. That's right. You know, a general conference made big resolutions. Washington, D.C. listened, and our laws in some sense often reflected the sentiment of the Methodists. We have seen a huge loss of face um, going back to Prohibition, and then all after that, um, very few institutions actually stay the same over time. And for some reason, we feel entitled to that, but we shouldn't. Right. Um, so there, there has to be an openness to uh, death and new life. There also has to be an openness to, and I don't hear liberals or conservatives saying this. I wish I heard, I would hear more people say, it, I guess it sounds defeatist, but I need more people to say, God might not be with us. Hmm. Um, I know that I feel I have a calling. I know that I feel I'm on God's side, but the fruit does not seem to be here. Right. Is, is it at all possible that we have jettisoned something essential? Is it, all po- is it at all possible that we have majored in the minors hmm. or that we have uh, not held up the standard in the banner? So anyway, you can tell where my sentiments are. Let's hit the moratorium. You're of the mind that, that apportionments need to continue to be paid in conferences where the conference leadership has seemed to be generally amenable to, to helping churches get out under 2553 without too big a, a hurdle. With the moratorium, the moratorium was pronounced with the, the, the protocol, while we have this, this peaceful separation in mind, let's, you know, we... Yes, we have a, a lesbian bishop that the Judicial Council said should not be in place. Yes, we have entire jurisdictions and annual conferences who've said they're not going to obey the discipline. Yes, we have many clergy within almost every annual conference who have refused to abide by the strictures of sexual morality spelled out there and who often also preach things inimical to classical Christian doctrine in, in, a, in a number of other ways. Yes, we have all that. Don't talk about it. Don't press charges, don't insist on the purity of the body or in uh, common shared discipline, that's now over, according to the WCA. Now, game on. If you guys want to play hardball, we're going to call out a spade. We're going to talk about heresy where it's preached. We're going to talk about sexual immorality where it's practiced. Is that a different thing from the apportionments, or is that also uh, something that accountability should that only be practiced in conferences where they're making it hard for conservatives to get out? I would say the moratorium should have never been put in place, right? The reason we're in the shape we're in is because we've absolutely ignored the rules that we have put in place. So why continue down a destructive path? Church after church that I've served, I've walked in the door and I just hear person after person who's left this church Mm -hmm. because we don't follow the the discipline that we've set out for our churches. So I would say um, the moratorium, it should should not be in effect. Why why would why would we allow? Um, why would we if if we're not going to allow for this graceful way for us to go our separate paths? Why would we not adhere to the rules that we have set before us? 
follow the rules and those are the rules. So if they want to change those in 2024, they can change those in 2024. But in 2019, and I get sick of the, well, it was just a small majority. I don't care if it was a small majority. When you look at like any voting system, any two-party voting system, that's actually a big majority. When, right. when you look at the U.S. Senate, when you look at it, it's actually a, a sizable margin. Yeah. Even so, at 2019, they not only maintained the standards that we had, but actually made them firmer. Yeah, they increased some uh, penalties for clergy that performed same-sex weddings, uh, They, uh, which is like mandatory suspensions without pay. Uh, so if you're going to violate the discipline in this area, this is mandatory. So to people like me and you, what has seemed to be, the clear picture seems to be people on the ground, local salt of the earth United Methodists across the world and within the United uh, States have generally preferred a traditionalist conservative stance to the Bible and sexual ethics. And the only reason we've had this acrimony is because of uh, people seeking and gaining power at the top levels of our, our denomination who exercise their authority to um, cause discontent. Yeah, um, and, I would, and I would wholeheartedly agree with that. And uh, you said earlier uh, that, you know, laity is more conservative than the clergy. Right. And, uh, you know, the, the sad part for clergy is um, I saw a Facebook post the other day on one of the popular clergy pages, and, and literally the person admitted, well, I knew that the United Methodist Church didn't really have the beliefs I did, but I knew that once I got in, I could, I could work to change those. Openly said... In other words, we took the clergy person took their covenantal vows to say, "I will teach, believe in, mm -hmm. and uphold our discipline." Basically, what they're saying is that what they really said is, "Well, I hear what you're saying, but I don't buy it, and I want to change it." Yeah, John Lomparis wrote uh, an article on uh, this that I actually caught some heat for whenever I reposted it on Facebook, but saying that our denomination would not be in this mess had people been honest mm. and just not taking those vows, but that, that we had such a massive number of people who wanted to be clergy who were willing to lie about whether or not they believed that the discipline was in line with the scriptures and whether or not they were going to enforce and defend it. Um, and there are a number of people that I've known over the years who I've made that point and they've taken issue with that, but I haven't heard a way in which that's not true. Right. Well, and, and, uh, when lady asked me about it, well, you know, how do they get away with it? Well, they don't say it publicly. They don't stand in a pulpit on Sunday morning and say that they question the virgin birth mm -hmm. or... Uh, some do. John Shelby Spong. Some, you know, we, some will, We yeah. find bold, some yeah. bold enough to do that. But but overall, they know that the laity are more conservative, and so they know that they can't stand in a pulpit and say some of the things they actually believe. Right. If I couldn't stand in my pulpit and say the things that I actually believe, that would be living a lie to me, mm -hmm. and it would go totally against my moral code to do that. So, again, I go back to a profession versus a calling. Right. You know, if, if you truly are called and you're passionate about Jesus and you're passionate about uh, bringing transformation to people's lives, you will tell the truth of what you believe. Yeah. If you have to hide what you believe, then there's something else there. And so that's what happens is these clergy serve in churches and they, they're, they won't tell it to the laity because the laity will run them out of the church. Yeah, yeah. They want people that believe and what we believe. And rightfully. You know, I mean, this is the hard thing is 
when you're talking about conflict is actually good, when we're talking about ending the moratorium and people now filing charges on clergy that are not in conformity with the discipline, what a lot of people automatically feel is hatred. You know, this is a hateful thing. This is a, and from our theological disposition, it sounds dishonest to people who don't agree with us, but we actually see it as the most loving thing in the world to exercise church discipline Absolutely. upon people who are not in conformity with it. Because what we see is a, a very pitiful person living in dishonesty, having entered an entire way of life in dishonesty and pl- practicing it day in, day out, and the way that that must warp them on the inside to be this um, divisive, divisive, subversive character in an organization that has made room for them is evil, mm-hmm. we would see. And that's pretty strong language, but in that case, the most loving thing to do is to shine a light on that dark place. Now, it's not going to be received that way. It's not going to be felt that way. It might not even look that way to most eyes, but people like you and I would genuinely believe Jesus sees it that way. Well, it's, it's if you have kids, you've ever had kids, or you've been around people that have kids, or you've, you've supervised kids, when the kid reaches for the hot stove, the loving thing to do is grab the kid mm-hmm. and pull him back. Don't touch that. Yeah. that that'll hurt. The, the loving thing... Well, change the metaphor, not even just for a child. Pretend you have a friend over and he's about to lean over on the stove. Don't do he, that. He's an equal with you. You yeah. know, when we're looking at other clergy, we're not saying, "Oh, these poor children." Oh yeah, we're yeah, going, yeah. I, These people are equal to me, right? Or even a higher ranking. I still don't desire that they would burn. You know, <laughs> but but from God's perspective, us, yes. us as His children, I understand now. Yes, you know, God doesn't want bad for us. No, God's well, a holy God. The Lord disciplines the one whom He loves. Right. The Scripture says it flat out several times. And so the so the idea that me telling someone the truth of the scripture is hateful or hurtful or bigoted is really missing the bigger picture. Yeah. True love is not saying do what you want because I love you to let you do what you want. True love is saying, Hey, this is what you're doing, but this is what scripture says. And I just want you to know that mm-hmm. now you can still go do that. Yeah. You're you, free got the to free, do you got the free choice to free will to do that, yeah. but you need to know really what, Scripture says about that yes. and how that plays out. To me, that's love. And so I think we have a competing uh, definition of love. Absolutely. And Absolutely. Because, and we live in a relative society. Everything's relative. So how it feels to me yeah. is how our society lives. And, and that's not what the church is called to. The church, yeah, we're, we're called to objective, mm-hmm. not subjective. We believe, we're called to truth, we not believe, my truth, God's truth. Yeah, Absolute truth. We believe in absolute truth, and God so is So when I thought about truth. sitting down with you, I thought about doing the culture war thing of, can you tell me what a woman is? What is a woman? <laughs> I thought about saying, do you believe in absolute truth? Yes. You know, because as you sit down and figure out who you're going to have a conversation with, I think these are things that on a uh, basic level are dividing people right now. Do you believe in truth with a capital T, or do you only believe in subjective truth? Do you believe that identity is something that you negotiate with people around you or something that is already within you and you get to say what it is? These are foundational issues about how we communicate and are in relationship with one another. We want to brush over it, act like it's not there, but it's what's undergirding everything. It is. Right now. All right, well, let's let's, uh, shift things to the Judicial Council now and the decision they made on 2548.2. Uh, the way I set this up was this seems indicative to a lot of conservative people that the Judicial Council has been co-opted essentially by the interests of the Council of Bishops. Um, 
there is a, a strong institutionalist impulse to hold everything together as much as possible. And so that means erecting barriers that make it harder for churches to leave. And when they do, they have to pay out the nose in order to do it. 2548.2 uh, made it so that uh, a lower threshold needed to be met in order to vote to leave. People could make payments over time with unfunded pension liabilities. And there was an understanding that it was a, a transfer of membership to another denomination rather than just um, uh, ending their connection to the UMC. These are the differences between 2548.2 and 2553, which is now the only option. Does this seem indicative to you that the Judicial Council, I mean, we're having this conversation in the context of a culture where uh, in the Supreme Court, the American Supreme Court, there have been a series of decisions that seem to be in favor of right-leaning persons. We're in a body now, an ecclesiastical body, that, that has a series of decisions made that seem to indicate solidarity with a left-leaning position. So as I'm, as I'm reflecting on it, I feel that temptation to say, oh, they've just been co-opted. Um, but then I, I find that a very disingenuous way to be in the world, uh, to be honest. I, I don't appreciate it whenever left-leaning people in the political arena just say, oh, the Supreme Court is, is full of it. The, and so is it the same situation in the United Methodist Church, or are there differences here where we can speak with more clarity? That's a great question. I felt good about it, yes. <laughs> um, so, yes, I would say that, that uh, conservatives feel like uh, institutional protection, trying to protect the institution, uh, does seem pretty prevalent. And a lot of it has to do with timing of releases, uh, questions posed to it by the bishops uh, in timing, not just this decision, but others. Um, everything seems to be, um, appears to be, if you were just looking at it from a thousand foot, that there's a lot of conversation probably taking place on how do we protect the institution. Um, and let's just be honest, every institution tries to protect itself. So it's human nature for the annual conference or wherever to try to make sure the annual conference lives beyond December 31st, 2023. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just human nature. It's who we are. We want the organization... Think about the local church, okay? New pastor, you come in, the number one goal of some of those church folks is to make sure this church doesn't change too much that they can't identify it. And they will fight tooth and nail to make sure that you don't change things in the church so that they can still say this is their church and what they belong to. Not bad people. They have a heart for Jesus. Well, they believe they're doing what's in the best sure. interest of the church. They don't have bad intentions. They don't have bad intentions. Yeah. And they're, likewise, people at in the judicial council, people at the the top of our denominational polity, you're not inferring that they have bad motives. Oh, they're no. corrupt. But you're you're inferring that there is an institutional interest prevailing in their decisions. It appears that way. Yeah. And 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 it feels that way. Um, you know, I, some of my some of my colleagues are totally bent out of shape about that. Um, for me, it's them just trying to protect the institution mm -hmm. that they love and that they think is headed in the right direction. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. And so that's what they're doing. For yeah. me, I think the denomination's headed in the wrong direction. And so their decisions for me play out in my life as in that just doesn't seem fair, it doesn't seem right, uh, doesn't operate that way. The decision really plays out, um, and, and I heard this at a meeting yesterday, that um, 2548.2 is about property, mm -hmm. and 2553 is about people. Well, and even so, the property can only be transferred under strict 
circumstances. So there, the the language and the discipline is very broad. You know, uh, just talks about another evangelical denomination. It does not say that the only body that can decide what is an evangelical denomination is the Council of Bishops. It does not say that the annual conference cannot define that for itself. And realistically, uh, for several decades, dozens, if not hundreds of churches, have disaffiliated using that provision. Right. Um, and, and it has been determined by the annual conference. And, you know, um, this, this is in common with another uh, Judicial Council decision several months ago saying, yes, the language and the discipline is there that an entire annual conference can disaffiliate. However, General Conference never created the, the process whereby they would do that. So even though it's in writing, and even though hypothetically you can do it, until you create the process, you can't do it. And things like that feel very disingenuous. Yeah. Um, and especially when in the discipline we have language saying, the primary unit of our denomination is not the general conference, it's the annual conference. And then to have all these seemingly um, strong federal authority decisions saying, actually the annual conference doesn't have this authority, Council of Bishops does. Mm -hmm. And if there's a rationale to that, I haven't seen it yet. They well, just say it. They just say it. Well, in, in um, the Council of Bishops really don't have any authority but here they are with... That's one of the things they say, here, and then we see them exercise all that authority. They, here they are with all, all of the authority that they, they have upon themselves. Yes. So so one of the things, as I, as I went through what's going on in our annual conference, all these ones disaffiliating already at the start of this, mm -hmm. you know, there's probably going to be a lot more next year. What I would like, you know, as all these churches are leaving, when you look at like Northwest Texas or Central Texas, when you see what's happening there, which is, if you don't know... Pretty much the entire annual conference is leaving. When you have all this happening, it seems to me clearly indicative that something is off, something is wrong. Um, you know, if I if I have if my wife all of a sudden wants to leave me, <laughs> I'm I'm not going. Oh, you're crazy. You know, I, I, tell me what's going on. Right. I, I want to know what's going on. But what I see, generally speaking, from the other side is what I think is called gaslighting. Just saying. They're, they're leaving all over these things that are not real. They're not as big as they say they are. There's disinformation and misinformation. They're being ma manipulated by Mark Tooley and the IRD and all these other people. This is completely unnecessary. Is, what's to be said about that? Is there, do you think there's a point at which things fall apart so much that finally our denominational leaders go, oh, we really screwed up along the way? Um, or do you think that this is one of those things where everybody's just so dug in that there's really no hope for that? Yeah, I think, I think we are dug in. I think both sides are dug in. Um, I believe, and, and I feel the atmosphere, uh, even from the Council of Bishops, uh, Bickerton put out a, a response the other day about misinformation from the WCA and whatnot. Um, I think Bickerton's a bishop, yeah. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's the uh, actual the, uh, uh, chair Council of Bishops. It's not called chair. President? Yeah. So he put out a deal talking about, um, you know, we're, we're moving forward, uh, that the language on homosexuality will be changed, uh, that we're going to focus on colonialism and, and racism, uh, and that the, the presentations or the, the information for the WCA is that is, is inaccurate, not, not accurate, not good information. So the challenge rolls into the, into the idea that um, you can ignore the disease, but at some point the disease is going to take you. 
And I think the reality is, is that more and more churches that are coming forward, you know, I sat in meetings uh, prior to uh, this all coming to, to light at the annual conference level where there was this air that, oh, it'd be a few churches. We don't, you know, it's not that big a deal. Well, I sat in a meeting yesterday where when names of churches started being listed, people's faces were like, it, all of a sudden it's a reality. Yeah. It is a reality. We're going to lose a considerable amount of United Methodist churches that don't feel that the denomination represents them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and everybody's like, "Well, they're leaving." Well, the, the denomination has left. Yeah, yeah. There's that classic Ronald Reagan quote: "I, I didn't leave the Democrat Party; Democrat Party left me." Yeah. But the chair of one of my churches, uh, as we're talking about this, said, "We're not leaving the United Methodist Church. The United Methodist Church left us." long ago. The people who built this church would not be okay with the direction things are headed. And then, you know, for even in this statement from the bishop to be using um, uh, signaling language for culture war stuff, colonialism and racism and Mm -hmm. stuff. Um, And it's not that conservatives don't care about colonialism and racism, but we understand the primary purpose of the church to be salvation of souls, not advancing a political agenda defined by the two-party American system. So it's, it's, it's one of these things where we've seen this tsunami coming from a long way off. We watched the Episcopalians, the Lutherans, the Presbyterians do it all along the way. We've been saying, let's do it better than, let's do it better than them. And then it's here and we're not doing it any better. It doesn't seem to me. No. And that's, you know, in the local church setting, you know, that's the conversation is we're going to do it better. So what are we going to do different than those those churches did, those denominations did, how's that going to work out for us? Yeah. If you want to know what the United Methodist Church is going to look like 10 years from now, go pull up the Presbyterians, the uh, PCUSA. The PCUSA. Look at what took place there and where they are today. You know, the, the thing was for, for them was uh, clergy won't be persecuted. They can still be traditional and be within the denomination. Yeah. No, you can go look up and see clergy that are persecuted, that they've been given moved from their appointments, they've been told they have to do same-sex weddings. Yeah. I mean, the writing is on the wall. Yeah, that transitions into the last thing uh, that I talked about, which was that a number of conservative leaders have just straight up said, you got to get out now because there's no way it's going to be saved now. If you're going to get trapped inside, then the they're going to change the rules and they are going to force you to comply or kick you out. And so when, what I just heard you say is when you look at the Episcopalians, the Lutherans, the Presbyterians, any, any group that has had this takeover from the left, it does, they do not, you know, we've had language within the UMC that we can be a big tent, we can keep traditionalists in, we're not going to force anybody. You're saying that there are large institutional um, forces at play, unavoidable, that, that are just going to make that impossible. We are not going to be able to make room left-leaning progressive clergy and leadership is not going to be able to make room for traditionalist clergy who think that um, that the Bible is not this uh, culturally contextualized thing, but is the eternal word of God, especially as it pertains to sexual ethics. That is not going to be, we're going to be persona non grata if we stick around. I think if you look at the denominations that have gone through this and see how the traditionalists have been treated, how they've worked that out, it's not gone favorable for them. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to. It feels like you're inferring bad motives. It feels like I'm inferring bad motives on a, on a whole group of people when I say, 
I know you're saying you're not going to do this, but you're going to do this. Yeah. You know, but it, I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's like, uh, I said, I wanted to go to the strip club and I promise I won't touch another woman. My, my wife is going to say, no, you're not going into the strip club because there's a point at which you touch another woman. You know, so we imagine that we can take the ring of power, use the Lord of the Rings metaphor, yeah. take that ring of power and not use it or misuse it. And um, that's just not how uh, group dynamics work. And let's be clear. I don't think that that forcing a traditionalist to do that is done with malintent. No. It's, it's from a true, sincere belief that it's the right thing to do. Yeah, they are keeping you... As a traditional, they're keeping you from killing trans and gay kids. Mm -hmm. they, 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 see, they see what you and I believe as hateful, bigoted, causing harm, and they're ending our capacity to do harm because that's what they would want in our shoes. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and so it's not that they're evilly want to do that to you. They yeah. just feel it's the right moral ethical thing to do. Yes, yes. Well, that's a good place to end on. And then the 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 question that's going to continue as I probably continue doing these segments is, are we looking at the splintering of a church or are we looking at um, it being revealed that we haven't been a church for some time and that we need to reclaim the true church out of this, as silly as that sounds. So anyway, I don't have the gifting and power uh that, that you have. However, I'd still like to pray over you and me as we conclude our time together. And, and I just want to thank you for spending this time with me. Yeah. Just remember my gifts, not any more special than your gifts. Oh, I'll, I'll gladly take comfort in that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Father, I thank you for my brother, Rudy, and um, for the ways in which you have uh, guided him and guarded him all his life. Um, to hear his story, Father, I've just been really affected um, to, to see the ways in which you have have provided for him and ministered to him and um, forborne him, loved him, despite many uh, failures and, and missteps and some running away and denial and insecurity, doubting in you. Lord, you've been so faithful to him, and you've been so faithful to me, and, and really, Lord, that's that's one of your, your key attributes. You've only ever been faithful to us, and it's we who we let you down and, and we, we turn away from you and, and we repent, Lord, of our faithlessness. We thank you for the ways in which you have borne fruit through us. I, I haven't seen the fruit in my ministry that, that you've shown through Rudy and, and Piper, but uh, you've been faithful to me in other ways. And uh, Father, I, I want to thank you for the ways in which you take um, clergy like me who serve in humble settings, clergy like Rudy who, who have started off halfway through life and um, and had the humility to follow. Father, you've, you're pouring out your, your goodness, your healing, your light on, um, well, on, on millions throughout the world. Mm -hmm. your, your grace and your salvation has touched us, and we are forever changed, and we ask, Father, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit more and more on this world. Uh, Father, we pray for the salvation of all, and... Um, and we, we thank you for making us a part of your saving work. So I want to ask your blessing upon Rudy and Piper and his church in Duncan and just ask that you would um, that you would prepare the way for your Holy Spirit to be powerfully poured out upon them and that, uh, that you administer to the Methodists, Father, as confused and spread out as we are, that you would bring order 
that you would help us to be better than those who have walked this path before, that you would help us not to cause harm, but to uh, lovingly allow for coercion to end and for freedom to reign, and that we would use that freedom to glorify you. We ask these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Glad you joined us. Uh, I personally benefit from hearing conversations. Uh, I've benefited from this one greatly, so uh, uh, may the Holy Spirit work on you as you meditate on these things, and may you be a blessing to your local church as you engage.